0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Joseph Gerson, President of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security, who assesses the danger and rising tensions between the U.S. and China over Taiwan. Dr. Bandy Lee, a forensic psychiatrist and President of the World Mental Health Coalition, who examines Donald Trump and the Republican Party's dangerous embrace of political violence. And Phyllis Sinclair of Adirondack Voters for Change, who discusses her New York-based group's voter education campaign, targeting Representative Elise Stefanik, the number three Republican in the House of Representatives. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: Pro-democracy activists in Brazil are raising the alarm over a possible pre-election coup as right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro trails in the polls behind former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who has a 10-point lead in advance of the October 2nd election. Bolsonaro, a close ally of former U.S. President Donald Trump, called diplomats to the presidential palace to make unfounded accusations of flaws in Brazil's electronic voting system, which has functioned without controversy since the mid-1990s. Brazil's Supreme Electoral Council issued a list of 21 rebuttals to Bolsonaro's Trump-like claims. There is a growing fear that violence could break out on September 7th, Brazil's 200th anniversary of independence from Portugal. On that day, Bolsonaro has called on his supporters to march down Rio's Copacabana Beach with members of the armed forces. The nation's intelligence agency is investigating a possible conspiracy where right-wing extremists would attack Bolsonaro supporters at the rally and blame the violence on leftists in an attempt to change the course of the election. African leaders gathered in Rwanda in late July for the first continent-wide meeting on conserving nature. The conference comes at a time when conflicts between governments and locals over land use are becoming more frequent. An agreement produced at the conference acknowledged past and ongoing injustices experienced when indigenous peoples and local communities have been denied their rights and vowed for these injustices to be halted now and in the future. However, tourism-dependent countries across Africa are unlikely to honor such commitments as states balance indigenous rights with calls to increase conservation programs. In Tanzania, state security forces have attempted to evict indigenous peoples living within the Ngoro-Ngoro UNESCO Conservation Area, resulting in ongoing violent clashes. In June, the Tanzanian government designated 580 square miles of land in Ngoro Ngoro as a luxury game reserve for the Emirati royal family. According to Foreign Policy magazine, an estimated 150,000 Maasai people are now facing displacement in the Ngoro Ngoro region. United Nations officials warned that the planned eviction could jeopardize the Maasai's physical and cultural survival in the name of nature conservation, safari tourism, and trophy hunting. In the 2020 election, the Republican Party made surprising inroads in South Texas and other communities of color, which were part of a strategy to cut into the base of Democratic voters in swing states. This year, the GOP is funding two dozen deliberately secretive community centers in contested states that target minority voters with door-knocking and phone-banking campaigns while offering local residents free meals and holiday family events. One of the centers is at the edge of an indigenous community of Pembroke, North Carolina, a diverse rural community plagued by poverty. Republicans found allies there among the 55,000-member Lumbee tribe, which won Trump's support for federal tribal recognition. In the swing state of Georgia, Republicans have set up community centers in greater Atlanta, a Democratic stronghold. One center recruits Asian-American voters in suburban Gwinnett County, and the other center does outreach in Atlanta's African-American College Park neighborhood. According to the American Prospect, the goal is not to win, but to reduce the Democrats' winning margins, votes that are going to be critical in tight races for gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams and Senator Raphael Warnock. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: One day after the August 14th arrival of a U.S. congressional delegation in Taipei, Taiwan's capital, China's military conducted combat patrols in the waters and airspace around the island nation. A Chinese military official announced, quote, We will take all necessary measures and resolutely defend national sovereignty and the peace and stability of the Taiwan Strait. Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense said 30 Chinese People's Liberation Army warplanes and five vessels were detected in the Taiwan Strait on August 15th. After House Speaker Nancy Pelosi arrived in Taiwan for a visit earlier in August, the first such visit by a U.S. Speaker of the House in 25 years, Beijing also responded with military exercises. Harsh condemnation of the visit was accompanied by China's suspension of all cooperation with the U.S. on climate policy cancellation of meetings between U.S. and Chinese defense officials, and a halt to cooperation on the repatriation of illegal immigrants and legal assistance on criminal matters. After nationalist Chinese forces established a rival government on Taiwan in 1949, Beijing has viewed the island as an illegitimate breakaway province and an inalienable part of China's territory. Since the 1970s, the U.S. has officially recognized only Beijing, but it also supplies Taiwan with weapons and provides diplomatic support. Your reporter spoke with Joseph Gerson, president of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security, who talks about the danger and rising tensions between the U.S. and China over Taiwan, and how relations between Washington and Beijing could be improved. Uh,
2: you know, to understand what's happening uh, in relationship to Taiwan, I guess two two things to emphasize. Uh, one is the danger uh, that an incident, an accident, or miscalculation uh, of our military forces uh, could lead to to escalating conflict, uh, including even the possibility of, of, of nuclear conflict as we think about especially the, the nationalist forces on both sides. So that's, that's the most immediate thing we have to be thinking about. Then I think we have to step back and think about the larger context. And the larger context is what's called the Thucydides Strap, the uh, tradition, the pattern of uh, rising and declining powers, empires, uh, almost always, but not quite always, uh, ending up in disastrous conflicts and wars. So we had two of these, for example, uh, in in the 20th century uh, when the dominant powers, Britain and, and the United States, were unable to integrate uh, rising powers, Germany and, uh, and Japan into their systems. And, and if you will, I'd say we, we have a situation in which you know the United States is attempting to uh, defend what's politely called its hegemony and less politely called its empire uh, across Asia Pacific. I mean, we need to remember that go far, as far back as uh, 1898, when the United States was uh, conquering uh, the Philippines, Guam, annexing Hawaii, uh, the purpose was to gain access to the to the China market, uh, and you know, the Second World War, while it was an anti-Nazi war in Europe, in Asia, in the Pacific, it was a war between three empires: Japan, the United States, and Britain. Uh, the U.S. won. The Pacific became an American lake. Uh, the Chinese uh, you know, have have now come out of what they they perceive to be 150 years of humiliation uh, by the Western states in relationship to Taiwan. I have to say the Biden administration has made one mistake after another. You know, the the foundation of us chinese relations since 1979 uh, has been U.S. recognition of one China and what's called strategic ambiguity, whether or not the United States would actually defend uh, Taiwan in the case of a military conflict. What we've had with the Biden administration is a backing away from that, uh, moving towards support for uh, Taiwanese independence, uh, you know, rather than, than, than focusing on trying to maintain some degree of stability uh, and negotiations between uh, Taiwan, which is an increasingly democratic society, uh, and, and China. Uh, so you, you have, for example, talking points uh, on the State Department's uh, webpage, uh, which have been removed, uh, statements to the effect that um, we respected the one-China policy uh, or that we uh, opposed the Taiwan Declaration of Independence. Those have been removed. So uh, so then you have Pelosi coming. Uh, you know she's not just anybody. Uh, she's you know the, the third most powerful figure uh, in uh, under our Constitution, uh, now followed by, you know, by by this delegation. Uh, so it's, it's what we've been seeing. And we saw actually with in, in Biden's uh, uh, inauguration uh, is an effort by the, the, the Washington elite uh, to bring Taiwan fully into the U.S. sphere. In which the Chinese government, uh, believing Taiwan to be a, a renegade province separated from them for 125 years, first by Japan and then by the United States, um, you know, they're 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 signaling that they're they're not they're not happy about this.
0: When it comes to the escalating tensions between the United States and China, who benefits from that? I'm guessing defense contractors and weapons makers are the folks who directly benefit from. Increased militarism in the region. But the other side of that question, of course, is how could U.S. China relations be improved at this point?
2: Well, I think the the most obvious uh, step uh, would be to begin, uh, re- basically, rebegin, uh, recommence uh, what were called the strategic and economic uh, security discussions. It was kind of a semi annual meeting. Uh, between top economic and military leaders on both sides uh, to kind of share where their red lines are uh, and to talk about how to avoid uh, crossing them. You know, while we're dancing around the danger of of a massive war, uh, we're we're, we're avoiding dealing with uh, the second uh, of the existential threats we face, which is the the climate catastrophe. Uh, And the reality is that that's not going to be addressed uh, unless you have cooperation by the United States and China, which are the two biggest uh, emitters of greenhouse gases, and have the power to begin to to, to to pull this into control.
0: That was Joseph Gerson, president of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security, and author of Empire and the Bomb, How the U.S. Uses Nuclear Weapons to Dominate the World. Find more analysis and commentary on rising tensions between the U.S. and China by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. During Donald Trump's 2016 campaign for president, the candidate often spatted violent rhetoric, such as urging his supporters to beat up any protesters who showed up at his rallies. As president, Trump continued to use the same type of language when talking about police treatment of suspects or dehumanizing Muslims and immigrants who crossed the U.S. southern border. On January 6th, tens of thousands of Trump supporters attacked the Capitol, many carrying weapons, and some openly calling for the execution of Vice President Mike Pence and Democratic Party leaders. Five people died as a result of the violence carried out during the January 6th insurrection. Alarmingly, much of the GOP has aligned itself with armed white supremacist terrorist groups including the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. Since Trump's election defeat, the former president's allies have directed thousands of death threats to election officials and legislators, as well as their family members, including children. Now, as federal and state investigators pursue multiple allegations of Trump's criminality, the former president and his allies have ramped up their violent rhetoric. Calls for political violence from Trump supporters echoed by many extreme right-wing commentators, peaked recently after the FBI searched Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago for classified and national security documents. In addition to hundreds of online threats directed at federal law enforcement agencies, a man attacked the Cincinnati FBI office on August 11th, who was later killed in a standoff with police. Your reporter spoke with Dr. Bandy Lee, a forensic psychiatrist and president of the World Mental Health Coalition. Here, the best-selling author examines Donald Trump and the Republican Party's dangerous embrace of political violence.
3: Violence and political violence is a natural, logical consequence of having so mentally impaired a president for so many years. Uh, In fact, we were hoping very much as mental health professionals that our warning, our our scientific basis and clinical background that would tell us how dangerous the situation is in the spectrum of uh, dangerous situations and and also what interventions are necessary. And what was necessary was an early intervention. Three months after uh, our book was out, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president. Uh, Within three months, we were able to raise the topic to the number one issue of national conversation. In fact, I was invited to every cable and news uh, network news program. I didn't accept them all, but I was invited to all. There was not one I wasn't invited to. But after the American Psychiatric Association stepped in, using its clout essentially to protect the president over the public because it gets federal funding, Essentially shut down the discussion, even though uh, it was the number one the number one emergency of the Trump presidency was psychiatric, and uh, the current problem that's occurring throughout the nation is more mental health related than anything else. I often say that fascism is not a political ideology, but mental pathology in politics. Of course, it would like to present itself as an ideology, but we will quickly learn that it has nothing to do with ideology. It can attach itself to any kind of ideology.
0: We have Donald Trump, who's, of course, at the center of the Republican Party. But what explains in in your study of this situation here in the United States of the widespread embrace of political violence that might have started with Donald Trump, but it has now metastasized across the right? across the Republican Party specifically, and the the commentators and those in the, uh, the right-wing blogosphere who echo the calls for violence. It just seems we're in a very dangerous time.
3: Yes, we are indeed. Um, well, uh- the principal warning that we had and the reason why we were framing the problem of Donald Trump as a public health problem was because his psychological dangerousness and he is a violent personality with a violent psychology. If we did not contain that violent psychology, that it would translate and spread into social, cultural, geopolitical and civic Dangerousness and violence, and we are seeing it all across the board. Now uh, we have had Donald Trump, uh, not only did he complete the full presidency, he's about to run again, and uh, he's never been held accountable. His dangerousness has never been contained. And that sends an enormous signal, not just to the violent elements in society but to our very overall culture. So this is actually not surprising and a natural consequence of the Trump presidency and still a a consequence of Trump's influence. In fact, if we contained him now, we're talking about indictment of charges, prosecution after the January 6th committee hearings, and uh, the attorney general is finally stepping up after Much time when we would have advised, if we had any say, uh, that time was a dangerous thing to allow that uh, the situation would not remain neutral, but violence would grow as we have seen. Currently, from a therapeutic perspective, uh, indictment, prosecution and containment of these dangers is a very urgent step because there's a contagious effect to violence. And violence proneness, uh, and and that coupled with not only the violent rhetoric, but the detachment from reality, and cherished beliefs that people have taken on because of the president's mental impairments, uh, emotional investment in believing that the 2020 election was stolen, for example, subconsciously you may know that they are untrue. So in order to defend your belief, you become more
0: and more defensive and therefore violent. That was Dr. Bandy Lee, a forensic psychiatrist and president of the World Mental Health Coalition. She's the author of Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul, and editor of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. Thirty-seven psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president. Find more analysis and commentary on the rise of right-wing political violence in the U.S. by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. New York's 21st Congressional District, occupies the northeastern third of the state, from the Canadian and Vermont borders to the state's central region. The district is represented by Elise Stefanik, the number three Republican in the House, who took Liz Cheney's place when Cheney was removed by her fellow Republicans for her outspoken criticism of Donald Trump. Representative Stefanik is an eight-year incumbent and popular in the mostly rural district that skews conservative. After the 2020 presidential election, Stefanik refused to certify the results, falsely claiming widespread voter fraud. But a group called Adirondack Voters for Change is now working to educate voters about her voting record, which they say does not serve her constituents. These activists hope once her voting record is known, her popularity will fade. Two Democrats are running in the primary August 23rd, and the winner will face Stefanik, in the November general election. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Phyllis Sinclair, a member of the Hold stephanic Accountable Committee of Adirondack Voters for Change, a nonpartisan issues-based organization promoting citizen engagement. Here she discusses her group's voter education campaign that has posted informational signs across the district.
4: The idea is to just get as brief of a message as we can on that little sign. As you mentioned, it is just a regular old campaign sign um, with as few words as possible, but punchy, you know, capture attention. And then we put the HR number on. So folks, if they if they want to know and explore more, they can. Uh, we have a a very, very long list of her no votes. It just seems like this past year, she's done way, way more nays than yays, And so we've had to really, you know, tighten it and, and go for the things that we feel are either very egregious or extremely uh, relevant to folks up here. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican, if you're a Democrat, if you're an independent, whatever you are, if you're diabetic and you need insulin, you, you've got to have it be affordable you know, it's really a life or death thing. So we're, we're looking for issues and bills that she voted against that will appeal broadly to people up here, no matter what side of the political spectrum they are on. When we when we were brainstorming to try to figure out a way of sort of, disc- I don't want to say discredit in a way that, meaning it negative, but at least Stefanik has made makes a lot of claims about um, her support of the constituents in the North country. And we felt it was really, really important to do good fact checking, rely on the truth and show people, Hey, this is what she claims, but Hey, this is how she voted. Could you give some examples of what you're putting on the signs? For example, she claims very strongly that she supports veterans and you probably know we have a large U S army base, called Fort Drum, but let me tell you, she voted no on HR 3967, which expands the VA healthcare for exposure to burn pits. She voted no on HR 4673, that automatically enrolls vets in the VA healthcare system and gives them the option to opt out if they don't want to. She claims uh, she invests in the North Country, she voted no on H.R. 3684, which is federal funding for highway repair and construction, bridge safety and repair, and water system updates and repair. She claims she supports women. She voted no on H.R. 8373, a bill which guarantees the right to use contraceptives. She claims she supports small business owners. She voted no on H.R. 3807, which is funding for restaurants and other food and beverage purveyors in response to COVID. She claims she advocates for New York 21 constituents' health care. She voted no on H.R. 3 Lower Drug Costs Now Act, and she voted no on H.R. 6833, the Affordable Insulin Act which caps a monthly out-of-pocket cost to diabetics at $35 a month for their insulin. So for example, we'll write Stefanik voted no on controlling insulin prices. And then we'll put HR 6833 at the bottom so that folks can actually look up that House resolution and see, hey, did she really vote against that and why did she vote against it and who voted for it, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the list is just on and on and on. And I wanted to point out that all these bills that we're putting on our signs and all the bills that we researched that she voted nay on, they have, in fact, passed. They passed in the House, at least. So,
3: Phyllis Sinclair, your group is going after someone who is very popular and an incumbent, But you feel like if more voters knew what her real positions are, she would
4: not be so popular. Is that right? We know she's popular. And particularly now, she's even become more popular among the ultra-right. The people we're appealing to with this sign action are people who are either maybe independents who are saying, wow, wait a minute, maybe she's really not working for us. And possibly Republicans who are a little more moderate and say, hey, wait a minute, I'll tell you, when Elise Stefanik was elected eight years ago, she was a very moderate Republican and really a rising star in the Republican Party for her policies and et cetera. But she's changed a lot in the last two years, and we're hoping that maybe we can appeal to some Republicans that are saying this is not the Elise Stefanik I voted eight years ago.
0: That was Phyllis Sinclair, a member of the Hold Stephonic Accountable Committee of Adirondack Voters for Change. Learn more about the group's voter education campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WERU in Blue Hill, Maine, WDRT in Veroghe, Wisconsin, KYRS in Spokane, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.